So when we were getting ready to go to West Africa, they said, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna tell some stories. You want to know Mark chapter 5, 1 to 20, the story of the demon, and you want to be able to talk about from creation to the cross, kind of a little quick creation to the cross narrative. Because in so many other places in the world, this reality, the reality of demon possession, the reality of the strong spiritual world is, is as real to them as the reality of clinical uh, brokenness in our culture. And in addition, uh, missionaries will carry this story into a new places in the world, and they don't carry it in their book, they carry it in their heart. They, they carry it in a way that they can share it because what they found is increasingly the world is either uh, illiterate or non-literate in the way they learn. So <clears throat> many years back, there was this great effort to translate the Bible into every language, and the thought was the steps were go among a people, build their word tables, build their language and grammar, establish a written language, translate the Bible, teach them to read, then they have scripture. It's a lot. It's like 30 years of work for a people group. And while that's still important, there's still that effort still needs to be done and is still being done. I mean, what a precious treasure to be able to have the written word and to, and to pull truths from it. Nonetheless, what they're observing now is this people, even if we gave them the written language, they, are not, they don't learn by reading. They learn by telling. They're an oral culture. They're a culture that's driven by stories. So now the thought is, have the right stories for the people and go in among them with those stories. And this is, uh, this is first on the list for maybe half the mission fields of the world. So what a great way to invite you into this series is to maybe introduce you, maybe not for the first time, but introduce you again to a story that is, is breaking chains all around us among new people. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you the story. I'm going to share it, and I'm going to have a helper to do that with. Andy's going to come up, and uh, I want you to hear it, maybe like it might sound in a new place. Thank you. We got a, we got a good try in the first service. Hi, everyone. Is it working? Just keep talking. He's ready for you. Yeah. Okay. I do my best. So. Okay, so this is, might be how it would sound uh, somewhere else. Ready? Yeah. Okay. This is a story from God's Word. Jesus came to the shore, and he got out. Uh, he crossed a great lake, and he came to the shore. And immediately a man came up to him who was possessed by a demon. This man lived in the tombs and in the mountains. And he no chain could bind him and no shackles could keep him down. When people would chain him or shackle him, he would break those chains. There was no way to bind him. And this man saw Jesus from afar and he ran to him and he knelt down beside him. 
。当这个人从很远的地方看到耶稣来的时候呢，他跑了过去，然后低下了他的头。He ran from the mountains, and in the mountains,、uh, he was tormented. 在他当他住在山上的时候呢，他一直被嗯，就是 torment。That means、uh, suffered. Suffered. <laughs> suffered. Yeah, just 一直被折磨着 Day and night, he would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones. 不管是白天还是夜晚，他都一直在哭，然后呢，会用石头去割他自己 And he ran to Jesus, and he said,、uh, "What do you have to do with me, Son of the Most High God?" 他跑到耶稣身边说。至高的神的孩呃儿子耶稣啊，我和你到底有什么相干呢 ？And he begged him, please do not torment me, do not cast me out. 他对耶他对他求耶稣说，请你不要再折磨我了，请你也不要让我离开这个地方，不要把我驱赶出去。He said that because Jesus had commanded the demon to come out of him. 他这样说，因为耶稣呃让那附在那个人身上的鬼从那个人身上出来。And Jesus said, "What is your name?" He said, "My name is Legion, for I am many." And he begged him in the name of God not to cast him out into the country. Now, in a field, there was a herd of pigs, about two thousand in number. 嗯，有一片有一片农场，然后在那个呃农场里面有大约两千两千头猪。And the spirit said, "Please send me into those pigs where I may dwell." 那个恶鬼说，求你把我附到那些猪的身上去吧。And Jesus gave permission. 然后耶稣说，好的。And the spirit went into the pigs, and the pigs rushed down the hill into the sea and drowned. 当这个恶鬼附到那些猪的身上的时候。这些猪从山崖上面跑了下去，然后全部都淹死了。Now, when the herdsmen saw this, they went to the cities and the country to tell everybody. 当那个放猪的人听说这件事情之后，他跑到了城里面、乡里面，告诉所有人到底发生了什么什么事情。And people from all around came to see what had happened. 然后人们便从四面八方赶过来，去看到底发生了什么事情。And they found Jesus and the man. 然后当他看到了耶稣和那个被鬼附过身的男子的时候 ，And the man was in dressed normally. 啊，那个男的衣服都非常整齐，穿的。And he was in his right mind. 然后他也回归了他自己的思维。And they were afraid. 然后很那些看到那个男的人特别的害怕。And the herdsmen explained what had happened to the man and what had happened to the pigs. 那个放猪的人给所有人解释，就是到底那什么事情发生在了那些猪身上，什么事情发生在了那个被鬼附身的男子的身上。And the people begged, begged him, please leave, please go away. 然后那些人请求那个被鬼附过身的人说，请你离开吧，请你不要在我们这个地方。As Jesus was getting in the boat, the man he had healed came up to him. 耶稣给了那个人一条船。然后那个人被治愈之后，来到了耶稣的身边。And the man begged Jesus, "May I please follow you?" Begged him to follow him. 那个人请求耶稣说：“求求你，让我和你一起吧。” And Jesus said, "No." 然后耶稣拒绝了。He said, "Go to your friends and tell them what God has done for you." 
，耶稣告诉他：“去找你的朋友吧，告诉你的朋友，在你身上到底发生了什么事情。” And tell them of the mercy of God. 告诉他们，上帝是多么的仁慈。And so the man went to the surrounding cities, and many people marveled. 然后那个人来到了城市里面，告诉了所有人这件事情怎么回事所有人都非常的震惊。This is an account from God's word. 这就是上帝所说的话的故事。Good job. Thank you. Now that's how it that's how it looks, and when it happens, there's a few things that take place. One is Um, as the storyteller, if you're sharing the story, it's not your job to give commentary. So, I didn't get it quite right. If you're reading along, I didn't get it exactly right. But it was not my goal to add my opinion to the narrative. Okay. Rather, what, since it's an oral culture, you want to give them scripture as faithfully as you can, because it's just—it's not you and me that transform lives. It's God who transforms lives. So, to the best of our ability, we want to give them the pure word that can be handed, and then we follow the story up with questions. What do, what do you like about the story? What do you not like about the story? What does it say about man? What does it say about God? What does the story tell you to do? Who are you going to tell the story to? Sometimes, when we were uh, had a chance to see this this summer, the translator would be right next to us and would translate much the same way that Andy did for me, except that when I was done, he would. He would go off and yada do his thing for a long time, and I would ask somebody, "What is he doing?" He says he's telling the whole story again, just real quick, kind of like, "You got it?" I mean, in the person's language, because the translator knew the story better than I did. Love the Lord and re- love the Lord and wanted those people to know. So he did it with me as a courtesy, and then he did it with he did it again to drive it home because there's. Such good oral learners, they could take that story, and you could come back and a week later, and the story's been told in two or three more villages. So you tell the story as as well as you can. And here's another point: don't let the fact that you don't know a hundred percent of the story make you tell zero percent of the story. You tell what you know, and let God work with it. So you tell the story, and then you ask some questions, and from there, it would. Allow it to sew in, and and I wanted you to see it, and I wanted you to think. I don't think this is entirely entirely non-applicable to our culture. I, I, my hunch is, if I was sitting on an airplane next to somebody who wanted to talk on the way to L.A., I bet you, if I told an account of God's word, it would be more effective than handing them a tract. We maybe have gotten too pre precept oriented. These we are precept people. What are the truths? What are the bullet statements about God? Maybe there's a healthy adjustment back to saying, you know what? This is what God's word says. Go and let the Spirit work in them. So I'm going to offer that. I'm going to offer as an idea. It might be a fun life group exercise in your life group. You know, have somebody raise their hand and take a story, and when you meet back again, have them tell the story, just like it happened here. And they're in a you know, life group's a place where you know you can laugh and make mistakes. And but I think it would encourage people. It would help people own the story in their spirit, in their gut, and make them share it. So anyway, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go th- walk through this story. Be- you know, I'm grateful for 
the oral handing, I'm grateful for the written word, and we have both. So we're going to walk through this account and look in scriptures for just some things that we can learn. So the questions I want us to ask today are, what does this story say about the enemy, about Satan? What does it say about God? What does it say about mankind? And what does it say about the man who was healed? So with that, if you just want to look at the scriptures, we could think a little bit about what this says about Satan. I mean, this demon, Legion, is no, he's not the B team. This is the biggest demon story in the New Testament. He certainly is powerful. I mean, the story's told in a way that makes us appreciate the power of that demon. And we can see a few things about how this demon treats this man, which is, I think, indicative of how Satan would have us be treated. And here's the first one, is you see the man is not in control. He's not under his own control, which is, I think, true of spiritual captivity and spiritual bondage, that when Satan, like when Satan has chains on us, all the other chains break. There's the, the goal of Satan is to push us into a place where we're not in control. Another thing that you can see is the man's isolated. He's been cast out. I assume he's been cast out. He's living among the dead. I mean, none of us hang out in cemeteries. So he's been pushed outside of the people. Even the fact that it says he breaks this change in shackles, and every time they've tried to shackle him, he's breaking, makes me think that the people have tried in some ways to keep him near, and it just doesn't work. So now he's an outcast. Satan's goal is to cast us out. You ever, you ever see someone who's falling into sin? Do you ever see the tendency to isolate? It, moving away from a community that would help them. That is his strategy. That means when we see it, we don't simply diagnose it as though that person's making a bad mistake. The enemy is at work. The third thing you see here is the intent of Satan that to do us harm. You see the way this man mutilates his flesh with the stones. He cuts himself. This, the intent of Satan is to destroy us, to harm us, that, to bring us to a place of self-annihilation, to dis- that we would destroy ourselves. And so many different ways that Satan works play into these very same three themes of putting us out of control, casting us away from our communities, and harming ourselves. And you don't necessarily have to know whether that person has a demon or whether that person is just making poor decisions or whether that person is in spiritual... The, the truth is, if you, this is the calling card of the enemy. You don't have to exactly diagnose it to know that Satan's at work. We should be called... We should be called into these situations, not to stand far off and, because we don't know. You know, I think my hunch is if, if you and I were visiting over lunch on this story, we would get bogged down for an hour in the question of demon possession. My hunch is we would start with, what is it going on here? And pretty soon we'd be asking, so is schizophrenia demon possession? We'd in the, We've, I've been here many times. Is, is this demon possession? Is that depression demon possession? Is that ailment demon possession? How do we know what's clinical, what isn't? Right? We're so, we're a scientifically idolatrous people. 
So we know what we've lost our bearings as to what to call what. Because we feel uncomfortably on shaky ground to call anything spiritual, even though everything is spiritual. You know, and, and, and I just think it's... I want to encourage us. We don't have to know everything that's going on to see the enemy at work. He desires that we would be out of control that we would be isolating and that we would be harming ourselves. He's come that he would steal and kill and destroy. And the truth is, is the answer, the response, and I don't try to mean this glib as all people need is Jesus. I don't mean that. I mean the response of the Christian is the same nonetheless, to come, to come in and, and to try to pray and, and bring Christ to places where, where maybe the, the person is, is in need. So I'm not trying to make irrelevant the importance of diagnosis. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm saying this from a heart of, I'm, I'm not trying to be a simpleton about it, but I do think identifying the way of the enemy is an important step for the church. And what you see here is, uh, in the way of the enemy here, uh, well, Jesus shows up in it, and we learn as much about Christ as you do about the enemy, just, uh, just by being set against the enemy. Look at some of the things we learn about, about Christ. Let's watch the actions of the demon and, uh, and learn about Jesus. In the second verse, it says, immediately he meets Jesus. That's what it says. But in the sixth verse, it says, when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran to him and knelt down. Now put those two together. Jesus is getting out of the boat and this man with legion is upon him. But we know later that I guess through the eyes of the man, the demon sees Jesus from afar. I imagine still on the water, coming And in that moment, rushes to him and meets him at the shore. Verse 7 has the demon identifying Christ. What have you to do with me, son of the most high God? This is one reason, by the way, that this story is very valuable among much of the world that's pseudo-Muslim because this story identifies the person of Jesus Christ. Son of the Most High God. And in that account, the demon begs, begs that Jesus would not torment him. We see in verse 8 that Jesus had commanded that the demon would come out, and then we see in verse 10 this that the... The man with the demon, the demon is begging. Is, is, believe it or not, I guess we could use these phrases. The demon is kneeling at the foot of Christ praying for mercy. I mean, if you followed the pattern of this demon, you'd have a pretty good prayer life. Kneel, call Jesus Lord, pray in the name of God for mercy. <laughs> I'm not saying be like him. I'm saying we should note this is a classic prayer. The spirit world recognizes the supremacy of Christ. 
That's what I'm saying. And Christ gives him mercy, right? Christ allows him into the pigs. So what does this tell us? If you just put these things together, what, what, can we, what, what do we see about Jesus? What can we learn? I'd say the first thing is this. There is great power. Jesus is a man of great power. I mean, think of this. Why, if the demon saw Jesus from afar, why does he rush to him and beg for mercy? Why not run away? You ever think about that? Wrong way. It's, that must say something about the dominion of Christ. Like, I can't say this for sure, but my hunch would be that if you were standing there having a conversation with Legion, saying, why not run away? If the demon might have said, what are you, crazy? Run away from the most high God? Like, the kingdom of heaven is upon me. I'm caught. Like, the intention of God is on me. The worst possible thing for me to do would be to run away. My only recourse is to rush to him, bow, and beg for mercy. There's power. I mean, stories like this sometimes make people feel creepy because Legion sounds terrifying. The truth is Legion is terrified of Christ, which is the name and the person to whom we pray. We know he's powerful. We know he is the son of the most high God. He's not just a man of power, but he's the son of God. I think we could also say this, especially with the rest of scripture surrounding us, that it's the character of Christ to free mankind from captivity. That Jesus, this is his character. He's, you know, there's nowhere in the story that we see that Jesus charged the man or that he did this for profit or that he had some other goal. We can't I can't say that it demands that we think it's his character, but I will say there's no other motive in Scripture except that it's his character. I mean, just reduce the story for a second. Burn all the details off, and this is essentially what happens. Jesus comes to the shore, gets out, casts out a demon, gets back in the boat, and leaves, never to return. I mean, the town kicks him. They beg him to leave. This is the only thing he does here. It says that the Lord has come to give his life and life abundant. That's what the scriptures tell us. Why did Jesus come to earth? We might, we might see the earth as one shore. And Jesus crossed a great sea to land on the earth, to give us life, to get back in the boat and go home. That is his character. I think we could also say this. God loves people more than he loves things. It's 2,000 pigs. I mean, you can be an animal lover, but this, this account would challenge like animal-loving theology. God loves people way more than animals. We are precious in his sight. We're precious. And listen, it's not that God did a great thing for a great person. God did a great thing for the least in that community, the outcast of that community. So there's really no one who could be in this room today who could say, well, I know God thinks some people are precious, but me, I'd say, well, here is a man who is obsessed, possessed by a demon 
never asks for help, doesn't even have the strength to ask for help, and yet the Lord finds him precious. You're, you're precious. Let's look at mankind. <clears throat> Some details that describe at least mankind in general. Look at verse 14, the herdsmen. They run away and they tell people in the city and the country um, what had happened. And the people gather, and this is a very interesting part of the story, kind of a difficult part of the story. The people gather, they see the man in his right mind dressed in normal clothes next to Christ, and their response is unease. It's fear. It says, and they were afraid. It really is not the ending I want, or that my, when you're reading the story, that your soul anticipates. What you want is the people to come down to see the man in his right mind, dressed well, and for the Lord to give this Sermon on the Mount experience and teach, and that many that day came to know the Lord. That's what, that's what we want. What we see is, it's weird. It is the opposite of what we want, but something in me goes, eh, yeah, we can do that. Like, so it's unexpected, but not entirely not understandable. They begged Jesus to leave. It says the men, the herdsmen, came and they explained about the man and the pigs. You know, I, I know the, the herdsmen must have, it says they shared about the story. And while I don't know exactly what they said, I have to imagine that the herdsmen probably are very concerned that the city understands what happened because 2,000 of their pigs died. Like, if you might want to think of the, if you're the herdsman, what would you want to make clear? I didn't do this. Like, you, you might even tell us all we were doing was what we always do. The pigs like the hillside. We were just being pig farmers. And all of a sudden, that man, I mean, th- that might have been the gospel the town heard. That man did this. It's, it's quite interesting. The people mimic the demon, right? The people see Jesus from afar, they rush to him, and they beg him to leave. I mean, it's like Jesus came and cast the demon out of the man, and the men come and cast the Savior out of the town. It's, it's tragic. What does this say about man? I think we could say this, when God shows up, when, the, when God makes his way clear, when he shows up, a natural human response can be discomfort and fear. You know, I'd like to, this is, this is, by the way, this is why many people don't receive the gospel, is because the good news is perceived and their life is a threat. You say, how can it be a threat? It's because people build build a worldview. We all, every person does this. Every single person builds a worldview around them that helps them understand life and how they fit. People want meaning. People want purpose. People want to fit. People want to think well about themselves. And we construct quite, it's, it's happening 
not intentionally, but it's happening nonetheless. The structures being built around us, our, our worldviews being constructed in such a way that, that we can fit in wherever we are. So a child in a very abusive home is building a worldview that makes a, for survival in that abusive home. And a person over here who's grown up being told that they're ugly, they create a worldview that, that creates a place for that. And we are all creating a place, and some people find meaning in all sorts of things. Money, wealth, significance, importance, intelligence, family, a child, they build their worldviews. And Jesus shows up to these worldviews and he does something that shakes them. And, you know, if you're suffering in your worldview, the shaking saves you, like this man and the demon. I mean, if you're, if you're under the thumb of society, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom. But when you're under the thumb and God cracks that worldview open, it's salvation is what screams out. When you have a worldview that is affirming you, and God cracks that open, fear and discomfort. Says to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have to follow me. Ah. Says to the man with the family, you know, look, if you have to go back and say goodbye to your parents, you're not mine. Follow me or don't follow me. That's, you ever notice, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says to the rich man, you must sell everything you have. He says to the man who's going to go back to his parents, don't do that. He says to each one, he shakes the worldview of each one in the exact way it needs to be shaken. I, I just... I think it's difficult. This is kind of a mysterious phrase. It's, it's like afraid. I go, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but something in me understands it. The fact that G- we've all been in the message or the sermon or reading the scriptures where the spirit says something about us that is so uncomfortable. It calls us to, to radical difference from what we are or it denies the things that we call true. I, I happen to think that something like that's happening is the people... The people are having to deal with something they did not bargain for. They're having to deal with, well, yeah, I'll give you, just, I don't know if this is true, but here's just an example. I can imagine that the people decided the man with the demon in the cemetery is there because he's a bad man. I can see like an Aunt May yelling down to her little nephew, you better watch out or you're going to end up just like cemetery boy. Right? I can see that. Don't, you know, you better go to sleep. If you don't go to sleep, Cemetery Boy is going to get you. I, I, don't, I don't know how. Cemetery Boy is not the best title. It's not as good. Legion, Legion, right? Legion will get you. I, I mean, I can see, I can certainly see a cultural worldview growing up that thinks that that guy does not need saving, and yet Jesus showed up and said he's precious. That's uncomfortable. It's much nicer when people don't need saving around us. But Jesus shows up and says they are precious. Or it could just be that the people saw the loss of 2,000 pigs more than they saw the gain of the one man. You know, that, it could be that. There's a truth. 
To God, people are precious. To mankind, people have value, and they're different. Precious is to be cherished. Value is to have a fixed degree of worth. People will put us in the balance against things. We're worth only so much. To Jesus, we're precious. Maybe they saw the loss of the pigs more than the gain. I had an occasion once. I was, um, I was a supervisor of flying was the title. I was sitting in the control tower of, of an airport. In front of me are the ground controllers and the tower controllers. You know the, you know the tower, right? Sitting up there, not a big airport. And, uh, and my job was to supervise the tower control team to ensure the safety of flight, okay? So that's what I'm doing, and way down in the front are these two ground control controllers. And they're talking, and there's not a lot of, in common between the two of us, a lot of professional distance. So I'm never going to get into their conversation. They're not really invited into my world. It's, it's, it's the military. But nonetheless, I'm eavesdropping because I'm bored. So I'm listening, and one says to the other, they're talking about somebody, I can't remember if they knew this person, but somebody who had, had been caught selling drugs to children. Somebody was selling drugs to children. And the one controller says to the other, like, I can't believe somebody could do that. Like, sell drugs to children. How inhumane is that? I could never do that. And the other one goes, would you do it for a million dollars? And the person goes, no way. How could you do that? It's immoral. And the other one goes, what about 10 million? He goes, well, for 10 million, I'd do it. (laughs) I was like almost shocked out of my seat. Is that the world we're in? To God, you are precious. To people, you have value. I mean, what kind of person would give their whole life, their entire livelihood, give it all up so that you might be saved? I mean, you must be special. This is what we, you know, the enemy decides to drive us out of control, separate us from our loving community, destroy us, right? The enemy hates anything that bears the image of Christ. That's the enemy. God is a man of power. He's God is powerful. He's the son of God. His nature is to come save us. And he does it. He does it out of his own nature and his love for us. Because we're precious. There's one other character in the story. There's the man, right? The man wants to follow the Lord. I was visiting with my wife about this, and she said something really interesting. This might be the only time in the Bible where somebody truly wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said no. Please, can I come with you? No, can't come with me. But, I mean, we all know the truth is, is Jesus is not saying you can't follow me. Jesus is saying the way you follow me is by staying. Go. I mean, you might say this Gentile man is the first missionary in the Bible to Gentile people, nonetheless. He goes to the Decapolis, which is Greek cities in Syria. I just think it's neat that there might be people who believed in Jesus before Jesus had died and been resurrected off the testimony of this man. 
This is a story of God's word. Who are you going to tell? Let's pray. Lord, may we be followers like that. Followers that so willing to speak of what you've done for us and share how you've rescued us from things that have held us down, whether it's uh, a worldview built on lies or whether it's something like great spiritual darkness, Lord. We do know that we are born into darkness and we need your rescue, Lord. We know that's part of your nature. We know that you love us and you find us precious, Lord. And we know that you gave of your entire livelihood, Lord. You took, took off your crown to come and sacrifice your very life for us. Father, I pray that this truth, this truth of what you've done uh, would be sown deep into the hearts of all who hear, particularly those here today, Lord, that they wouldn't go week to week uh, hearing good news and growing numb to it. Lord, may we respond to you in faith and may we follow you well. In Jesus' name, amen.